And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. <laughs> and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. The area I grew up in is this area called Faha Hill. It's there even uh, today. And it is not in the center of Kuwait. Kuwait is a very, very small city. Honestly, you can go from the center of city to the border in exactly one hour. This is Ruth D'Souza Prabho. She's from Mangalore in India, but was born and grew up in Kuwait City. Both of her parents worked there. Her dad was working at the Kuwait National Petroleum Company and her mother at a British machinery company called Fermanite. So we were living on the outskirts, the where the oil companies were all located since dad was working in that area. And I was actually born in a clinic which was exactly opposite the apartment building that we were living in. So wow. when my mom okay. went to deliver me, uh, my dad could actually look out. They were not allowed to come to the clinic at all when that was happening. So dad actually stood at the window. Oh, how come? Uh, it, they were very strict out there. And also because my dad was pretty chicken about it and he didn't want <laughs> to be anywhere near. <laughs> yeah, so that's, I was born there. Ruth was born and grew up in that same apartment. Uh, in the same building, there was another Indian family who lived on the ground floor. There was also a Palestinian family in another apartment who'd sometimes babysit her when her parents went out. And we had a lot of uh, family friends from India, as well as from other countries as well. So we always, growing up, there were always nice dinners and lunches that were happening, get-togethers, birthday parties. I remember a lot of thematic birthday parties. I seem to have been surrounded by a massive Indian uh, community. But again, looking back now, I realize that what I understood as Indian was also Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Sri Lankan. So yeah, there was a certain amount of socializing with other communities uh, or other country nationals as well. But yeah, essentially it was just Indian. In the 70s and 80s, more and more Indians started moving to Kuwait and other parts of the Gulf for work. Her parents were actually the second generation from her family to move to Kuwait. It was during the, you can say, the so-called Gulf boom that happened in India, where a lot of people decided to head out of the country to the Gulf countries to be able to work and, you know, set up life. So my parents were among uh, those people. And yeah, that's where the story actually began uh, for us. Ruth's family lived in the city for 16 years. They'd travel back to India once a year for a visit, but their lives were entirely in Kuwait. They built a home, a community in the country. But this story isn't about how these immigrant communities got to the Gulf in the first place. It's about how they escaped. Uh, what I do remember very clearly is on August 2nd morning, uh, the entire building seemed to be the smile trembled to the building and these distant... I didn't know it was gunfire or tanks, but there was this distant sound of shots and booming. And I come out into the living room. My dad is standing at the window. We have these massive bay windows. And so he was standing at the window. And it was very uh, movie-like because uh, against his silhouette, I could see, uh, you know, billowing smoke from a tower. And so I asked dad, what's going on? And he says, I'm not really sure. At around 5 a.m. on August 2nd of 1990, Saddam Hussein's military invaded Kuwait City. Most had driven the 80 miles from the Iraqi border in a push that began at 2 a.m. And almost overnight, the city's residents woke up to a city under occupation by the Iraqi army. Stay away from the window. 
The situation inside Kuwait is serious. The fighting started this morning around 5.30. As the troops established themselves in key positions, Iraq announced that Kuwait's government had been overthrown by an internal revolution. Relations between Iraq and Kuwait had recently broken down over disagreements about the two countries' oil and borders. And with one stroke, Saddam Hussein and Iraq have eliminated billions of dollars worth of debt. The American, British and Russian governments were against the invasion. Uh, what has happened is a total violation of international law. You cannot have a situation where one country marches in and takes And over. the Iraqi military actually took some American and British residents hostage. But the Indian government had no stake in the conflict, and thousands of Indian citizens living in Kuwait at the time were caught up in a situation that didn't involve their country. Uh, is he going to be a constant source of, of problems there in, in, in that region? Should he behave this way, he's going to be a constant source. Which left the Indian government with a predicament that no government had ever had to face at that point. How do we evacuate nearly 200,000 of our citizens from a foreign country all at once. Today, the story of one family's escape from Kuwait during one of the largest government evacuations in history, and how the family left home for a homeland an ocean away. I'm Hiba Fisher, and this is Kerning Cultures, stories from the Middle East and North Africa and the spaces in between. It has to be close to your face. Why? It's recording your voice. Oh, no good lord. Okay. Our story today comes from producer Alex Atak. It doesn't have to be too close, just like six inches, ten inches, something like that. Perfect. Is And it's recording? It is now. Amazing. Thank you so much. Not at all. Um, well, I guess first, could you just introduce yourself? Could you just tell me your name and like what or whatever you do or however you want to be introduced? Um, I'm Carolyn Pays, uh, living in Australia right now. Uh came here in 2008 from India and uh, we've been here in Sydney ever since. And Carolyn is Ruth's cousin. She is my husband's second cousin, cousin's daughter. Yeah. We were together in Kuwait. Yeah. Uh, I forgot to ask her to wear her headphones. So you'll hear my voice coming through on Zoom from time to time. But anyway, Carolyn was also living in Kuwait at the time. She just moved there with her husband, Oliver, a few months earlier. My husband, Oliver, was born in Kuwait. So he came back in 89 and we got married in November. And I joined him in Kuwait in February of 1990. They just rented out a new apartment and they were planning to move into it on August 15th. So we had painted it. We had put carpets down. We had gotten things like a freezer, our crockery, our cutlery, not so much furniture, but some odds and ends. Could you talk, so what was life like in that short time that you were there? What kind of things would you spend your time doing? Um, what was your kind of life like? Basically, I was a housewife to start with because I was new in the country. You know, going about your one's daily chores while he went to work. But in the evenings, once he came home, we, uh, you know, would go out, we'd meet. meet uh, we had a lot of friends in Kuwait. There were classmates, there were people from Bangalore who we knew. There were old friends, uh, family friends who were there. Yeah, we, we did a lot. On the weekends we went out, we were never at home. There was the beach, yeah. there were restaurants, there was the entertainment city. There was a lot to do in Kuwait. It was beautiful. 
yeah and we were there getting our lives sorted out and things like that and then uh, uh Saddam Hussein knocked on the doors of Kuwait in August on the 2nd of August August was just a a month away from school reopening. School generally opens in September. This is Ruth the Suza Prabhu again. So we had just come back from uh, a trip to Mangalore. We had landed in and uh, pretty much just settling in and you know putting things in place, getting ready for school to start. Some I remember going shopping for all my school uh, stationery. Oliver, my husband worked for a British company in Kuwait at the time. and they they had been warned that there had been saber rattling on the borders and that it wasn't safe and they were asked to get their families out so ollie came home one day and said to me how would you like a trip to dubai and i said what on earth for he says no there's there's some problems on the border but what had happened was by the time we got this uh, notification it was too late Within a few days of the invasion, the Iraqi military had taken control of the airport, so they couldn't fly out of Kuwait and they had no way of getting out of the country to a different airport. Basically, they were stuck. I quickly put in a call to my parents in India. I called my father because my father was ex-army. And I said, "Dad, looks like this is the case. Can you put the TV uh, the news on?" So he said, "Yes, it's been confirmed." in case there's any problems stay in one place that's my father's advice is stay at home and if there's you know anything else going on get into a corner or get under a table and just stay there those were my father's words to me and the phone got cut by afternoon the tanks were rolling into where uh, we were living and one of the important things at that time was that Uh, since we were living in areas that were around the uh, oil companies and the oil tanks these massive uh, processing uh, tanks they also set up uh, their base in many of the schools in that area so my school where i studied was set up as one of their headquarters which was literally three roads away from where we were living so we were surrounded by the soldiers at that time we were terrified initially Basically we were we were frightened of the unknown. We knew something was going on. News of Iraqi atrocities soon began to leak out. We had the TV, we had CNN, we had BBC. Some of the executions by Iraqi firing squads took place in full view of anyone who cared But to watch. But what was happening on the ground outside the house we didn't know. Let me say that to the We are talking about a time when there was no internet and no um, mobile phones, and so my grandmother back in uh, uh, back home in Manglo actually offered up mass in our names. You know, in case we are dead, uh, let their souls rest in peace, and if we are alive, please bring them back safely. So in that sense yes we were terrified witless we were we uh, and the rumor the rumor mills amongst everybody the phones were working so everyone was calling and saying this was happening and that was happening and that was freaking us out there was this rumor that 
came one day saying that there is going to be a chemical gas attack and everyone's going to oh die. Oh my gosh. So, and they told us, you know, wet towels and put them against the door and against the windows and cover your face uh, with it. And uh, there were a couple of rumors that a teenage boy from one house uh, came out and took a pot shot at a soldier. So in retaliation, they pulled out his entire family from the house and blew up the house with the tank. It, it, it was frightening. Every evening the fireworks would start. So we didn't know whether we were going to be hit. We just, yeah, that was bad. Our building used to shake every evening. But um, not knowing what they were doing was the terrifying part. I think within a week, it was an occupation because they completely took over everything, including manning the traffic, uh, all of the supermarkets, all of, everything came back to functioning pretty much as normal. It's just that you'd see Iraqi soldiers all over the place and you get stopped everywhere. If you're driving out, you'll get stopped. Your ID will be checked. We also saw a lot of soldiers, um, especially youngsters who looked really, really young like 16 or 17 possibly with these massive guns and it's blazing hot in uh, Kuwait at that time. They would be sitting out in the shade wherever they could see it and they often came knocking on doors asking for food. So they were not an army who was very well fed. So they would often come home and say, just give us a cup of yogurt or a tomato or an onion and we are good to go. There was absolutely no school that happened. Um, We just stayed in the house pretty much. For me, I was just re-watching the movie tapes over and over again. We had VHS back then and I think I watched the same movie or record of 78 times because I had nothing else to do. <laughs> and it's one of the it's one of the most sillier movies that were made in Bollywood back then but which became a super hit. What what's the movie? It's this movie called Maine Pyar Kiya. Which translates to I fell in love. Uh, So my dad told me to write a diary. He said, this is going to be history in the making and keep yourself occupied, write a diary. Just keep in mind what's happening and just jot it down. August 30th, 1990. Somewhere last night from the depths of my sleep, I felt the bed vibrating. As I started to wake up, I heard the dull thud of explosions and it soon became deafeningly loud. Tanks, grenades, semi-automatic guns all seemed to be pounding the air close to us. I was terrified and I started whimpering under my covers. Now that I have a daughter who's the same age as what I was when uh, back then, it terrifies me to think what went uh, through my parents' minds at that time. Soon Mama came and carried me and gently placed me between her and Dad. I remember them both bear-hugging me and hearing the constant chant of prayers in my ears. I guess the intention was very clear. If we had to die, we would die together. Was the goal then, like, how do we get back to India? Or was it, let's wait this out, see what happens? So the goal was always, how do we get out uh, of here? What's the safest way to do it? But uh, the thing is, as with any war or any situation that goes wrong, a lot of people tried escaping right at the beginning. You know, the invasion took place and a couple of days later, people got into their cars. They just piled on everything that they had with them and decided to head to the borders. And a lot of them ran into a lot of trouble at the borders. There was looting. There was a lot of uh, beating them up. A lot of them were, you know, just left stranded. 
So a lot of people did suffer. And the our Indian government kept telling us through the embassies, you know, stay calm, we'll figure this out. It's a huge process to figure out. So stay calm, stay where you are. We had two concerns. One is that we didn't want a war, to see a war erupting. Okay? We wanted Iraq to withdraw through negotiations. This is KP Fabian. It comes from Massimo Fabio, the Roman general who fought against Hannibal. He's a former Indian ambassador, and at the time, uh, the time of the invasion, he was Joint Secretary Gulf to the Indian government. But, you know, when I say KP Fabian, it almost becomes a surname. But actually, it is my first name. Anyway, he ended up being one of the main people involved in the logistics of the evacuation. So once him and his colleagues at the Indian government realized that the occupation wasn't going to end anytime soon, they started trying to figure out the best way to get as many people out of the country as they could. How many Indians were in Kuwait at the time in 1990? Do you know? You see, probably 165,000. Plus, he said, about 10,000 Indian residents living in Iraq. So in total, they were looking at about 175,000 people that they'd potentially need to figure out how to help. And then we decided, look, if there is going to be war, then we have to take our people out. And how can we take our people out? Only with the cooperation of Saddam Hussein. After all, Kuwait was under his control. So it was decided that we will take our people out and that we should seek the cooperation of Saddam Hussein. So India and Iraq ended up signing this pact, which basically agreed that the Iraqi authorities would give the Indian government permission to evacuate and repatriate its citizens from Kuwait. But they couldn't evacuate them from Kuwait or Baghdad airport because those two countries were at war and it was risky. So the closest airport that could like handle um, thousands of extra passengers was Amman in Jordan. 1,400 kilometers away by road. Can I ask like a really stupid question? Um, how come pe- how come the decision was made to fly people from Amman instead of from Kuwait or from anywhere else? First of all, people have started moving towards uh, Amman on their own. Some people, not all people. Also, we thought that though Saddam Hussein did promise us uh, all his help and all that. But, you know, (laughs) we preferred to work through Amman. We felt more comfortable. So not an ideal situation, but they decided that it was their best option. At first, they were evacuating people on military planes, um, but they didn't have enough. And so Air India had a bunch of aircraft that were grounded because of a recent accident. Uh, KP Fabian told us that Because it was an emergency, that ban got lifted and they started scheduling Air India flights between Amman and India. It was uh, partly we arranged, we meaning the embassy and uh, also the Indian community. But uh, quite often, you know, a bunch of uh, business people will get together and hire a bus. You know what I mean. The embassy helped, the community helped, but then people did on their own. They had started this process and we got wind of it you know, through the grapevine, saying that uh, there was this process happening where if you were to buy a bus and 50 of you were to get onto that bus, you could go out, you could get out of the country. So Ruth's father, uh, he and his friends, along with my father-in-law, they rounded up uh, 50 people, we all pooled in. 
and we were able to buy this bus, so to say. There had to be 50 people. It couldn't be 51. It couldn't be 49. And we were told that we could carry uh, with us, in terms of luggage, we could carry only what we could physically carry ourselves, which when you're talking of a home that's been built over 16 years that my parents were in uh, Kuwait, that's literally nothing. Yeah. That's literally nothing. It's like a backpack each. Absolutely. It was just that. And uh, so we... Uh, I still remember personally, I carried two of my stuffed toys. I distinctly remember this teddy bear that I had. <laughs> we left everything behind. My father-in-law's 40 years worth of stuff went. He had been there for about 40 years. Everything we lost. What do you take? What, what takes precedence? And what did take precedence for you? Just clothes for the journey and my photographs. That's it. I mean, the scene is very clear for me when we stepped out of our house. And my mom is very particular. Before every journey, we say a prayer before we leave, uh, before any journey. And she said, I'm going to say a prayer. And she was very stoic, if I could say that, in her appearance. And my dad just looked at it. It's this, it's this understanding maybe that they had. And he said, listen, just think of it like you're closing the door, you're headed out to the market and just leave. Don't look back at the house. Because... He knew how much her heart was breaking to leave a house that she has built so beautifully, you know, just to leave it behind. We'll be back after the break. So so you get on the bus and, and what, what are your expectations for the bus ride? Nothing. We just got onto this bus and when it started drive, when it took off, we said a prayer. I said, OK, here goes. We were driving into the wild blue yonder. We didn't know a thing. 27 September 1990. Today we leave Kuwait. We left our home and headed for Salmiya school where all the embassy buses were standing. Our bus number was 24. We left Kuwait at 12.45pm and crossed the border in the evening and entered the occupying country Iraq, which was our only means of escaping into Jordan. When we reach the border, there is a small checkpoint uh, of sorts and uh, the bus was stopped and the bus broke down. And if you stand at the front of the bus, you are in Iraq. And if you go to the back seat of the bus, you are in Kuwait. That's how the bus broke down. Like you broke down literally on the border? (laughs) On the border, literally on the border. Oh my gosh. Ruth told us that eventually their bus got repaired, but they fell behind in the convoy. The rest of the buses went on ahead. I knew we were getting to Baghdad at some point in time. And after that, it was anyone's guess what route we were taking, where we were going. Nobody knew anything. Do you remember what you did to entertain yourselves on the bus? We we sang songs. There were lots of elders, so they prayed. We generally chatted. And there were strangers. We didn't know those people on the bus, but we became good friends by the end of... The second day, we were comrades in a crisis. So we got to Baghdad. We left early in the morning and we got to Baghdad that night. And as we entered the city, there were hoardings all over the place with uh, Saddam Hussein's pictures on it. In many ways, his photo was all plastered all over the city. And... uh, Arrangements for for that night, the embassy had arranged for us to stay at a hotel. But 
it's not a hotel where you know you'll get a room to yourself or anything like that 50 people one bus or 50 people were given two rooms to occupy our room was room number 18 and it was so small 16 people were in this small room there was one big double bed with a red mattress the toilet was small with a broken flush the central ac did not work and on the one carpet in the room there was vomit the men in the family all went and took turns to be able to guard the bus and uh, the next day the journey continued yeah it was again endless desert the journey took them 6 days in total to get to these camps uh, that the indian government had prepared for them near aman and when they got there they were registered by the red crescent um everyone was given a number Carolyn was number 75901 um her husband Oliver was number 75000 and basically the number system was when your number comes up it's time for you to fly home and i must tell you they looked after us fantastically they were so good to us every morning a refrigerated truck would come you queued up in front of the truck and you were given a box for it had your daily rations in that box they gave us things like rice they gave us pulses they gave us a tin of sardines there was salt there were apples there were crackers everything you needed calorie wise to get you through a day in those conditions and they gave uh, all the children were given a liter of milk a packet and uh, biscuits and then they told us that we're going to be allotted a tent number and we can go settle in that tent now each tent could accommodate around 20 people so our bus was divided between two tents that were right next to each other and that was going to be home for 5 days in all of carolyn's pictures from these camps you see these tent cities in the middle of the desert people lining up outside metal cabins uh, for food and water rations people cooking sardine biryani crouched over camping stoves In one picture you see Ruth as a young girl sitting cross-legged on the floor of a tent writing in her diary. Uh I'll tell you something which the world doesn't know. When I say the world I said my my outside circle and all that. I was pregnant at the time of the invasion. I had just gotten pregnant. And uh I lost that baby on the way out. It was in that camp that I miscarried. At about yeah, by because being on the bus for so long and all the jostling and the jolting around my I got pretty messed up and uh that was that was a dark chapter in our lives because we hadn't told anybody and by the time we needed to tell somebody it was too late. What happened is the next day we went to the airport 3 October 1990 Finally in the evening a bus came the boys loaded the bus and we left Azrak camp thanking the red cross and all the people there for their help After about 2 hours of driving we reached Amman and you could see these huge serpentine lines of people just waiting and waiting and they had apparently been there for like 2 days or 3 days by the time we got to the airport and they were just waiting for their turn to get into planes all indians all indians absolutely all indians and we learned that some of them had been in those in that queue for over a week 
And I thought to myself, what the hell? What's going to happen now? And what happened, I think for our good luck at that time, there was... A, so the Indian government uh, tried to tie up with as many other governments, friendly governments at that time to bring in their planes as well. Next thing we knew, apart from having gone in, we were boarded onto this brand new Emirates jet. Apparently, we were on the very first uh, flight, Mercy flight, that the Amir of the Emirates had donated. He donated 50 flights and we were on the very first one. So yeah, we got onto this flight and the next thing we knew we were in Bombay. And from there, you could take domestic flights within the country to anywhere you needed uh, to go. So Bombay was the closest to my hometown. And from there, it's a one-hour flight to uh, where I live. The flights out of Kuwait were covered by the Indian government, and they would have also covered train or bus fare from Bombay to Mangalore too. But Ruth's family decided to buy flights because they were quicker. And even in Bombay, we had people waiting for refugees coming back. And you were allowed a three-minute free phone call to anywhere in the country. So, yeah, I called my father at about two o'clock in the morning to say, we're home, Dad. I guess by that point, your parents knew that you were okay, right? They No, till then they didn't know, no. Oh, wow. They had oh my no gosh. news of us at all. They didn't know whether we were alive, dead, nothing, nothing at all. No communication for 58 days. So how was your dad's reaction when you called him? It was like, my girl, my girl, is that you? Where are you calling from? I said, dad, we're in Bombay. He was, instead of talking to me, because I had only three minutes, he was busy trying to wake my mother up, saying, Jen, Jen, they're home, they're home. And she was in a complete daze. And um, he apparently, after that, he went and woke up the whole household. He woke up the street, he woke up the neighbours. <laughs> yeah. He was, you know, kind of elated, yeah. Do you remember how long it took? to get everybody out? It's about so two months and about 500 flights. Wow, 500 flights. Third every moment. <laughs> I like tension. <laughs> and as I said, they got cooperation from everyone. Not only within the government, but also outside the government. Well, let me tell you one story. Over the following two months, the Indian government evacuated about 125,000 Indians out of Kuwait. Which, by the way, at the start of the episode... We said that it was the biggest ever government evacuation of citizens from one country, which is still true. But something I think worth mentioning is that in 2020, during the COVID-19 pandemic, India's government ran a similar evacuation mission with the aim of bringing 200,000 Indians back home from around the world. And uh, as a kind of postscript here to the to the story, in 2016, there was a Bollywood film made about the evacuation called Airlift. It's this high production epic that basically centers around one fictional character called Ranjit. And I think for a lot of the people who were like evacuated out of Kuwait at the time, it was like exciting that they were making a movie about it. Let's just leave. Just get us out of here. And I think there was a lot of build-up and a lot of like anticipation before it came out. But 
<laughs> okay, I had a lot to say about airlift. <laughs> Everyone we spoke to told us that they were disappointed by it. It honestly was not a true depiction of what happened. I I think we were all excited. Everyone was excited and because we thought okay, wow, someone's finally going to do a movie about this and it's going to be so cool. Yeah. And then we go to the theaters. I, we went to the theaters to watch that uh and uh, at the end of it I was like what just happened what was that uh, movie because there was honestly there was no mention of the convoys there was no mention of the camps it was it was at best it was a take off on something on a true incident and not really a depiction of the true incident at all so if you ever watch airlift and the whole thing is on youtube take it with a pinch of salt This episode of Kerning Cultures is produced by the Kerning Cultures Network, which means we're part of a bigger network. We have eight shows in total, in Arabic and in English, that are fabulous, <laughs> and we encourage you to check them out. You can find us at kerningcultures.com. Today's episode was written and produced by Alex Atak and Shraddha Joshi, edited by Dina Balut with support from Nadine Sheikh, Rizaina Dewidar, and Abda Amr. Sound design by Alex Atak, mixing by Mohamed Khezat, and Bella Ibrahim is our marketing director. Thank you to Ruth D'Souza Prabhu, Carolyn Pace, and KP Fabian for talking to us for the story. You can see the pictures that Carolyn took along the journey and the diary that Ruth kept. Uh, we'll put them both up on our Instagram. It's at Kerning Cultures. If you liked today's episode, please share it on social with your friends. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Thanks for listening. Until next time.